My topic today is the place of international law in national law. It's a very large topic. I shall have to be selective. It's also a very important topic because most of international law, most of the time, operates through national institutions, through national administrators, through national courts. I can begin with two propositions which I think can't be disputed. The first is that states may not attempt to justify their failure to comply with international law by pleading their national law. National law provides no defence. My second proposition is a related one, and that is that it is for national constitutional and legal systems to determine how to give effect to their international law obligations. Let me just elaborate a little on each of those two propositions. The first one uh, can be found in many places, the proposition that states can't justify their breaches by pleading their national law. Uh, one early uh, elaboration of that, state, of that proposition was by the Alabama Claims Tribunal back in the 1870s, an arbitration between the United States and Great Britain, in which the tribunal made it absolutely clear that Britain could not justify its failure to comply with its obligations by referring to its inadequate law. The International Court in 1988, referring to that precedent and referring also to a, an opinion of the Permanent Court of International Justice, uh, put it this way. They referred to the fundamental rule of international law that international law prevails over domestic law. And if you want to move to uh, treaty law, you will find the same proposition stated in Article 27 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Uh, that declares that a state may not invoke the provisions of its internal law to justify its failure to perform a treaty. One interesting aspect of that provision, if you go back to the records of the Vienna Conference that drafted that great treaty, is that that provision was not in the original text prepared by the International Law Commission. But states' parties at that conference thought they should add it, they should emphasise in addition to the proposition which appears immediately before that states must give effect to treaties in good faith, second, that they could not plead national law to justify a breach. Now, there's one interesting feature which I'll come back to uh, in, in, all of those, in each of those statements, and that is that they're about a failure to meet obligations. Now, a lot of international law does not actually state obligations. It quite often creates rights or powers of one kind or another. A state, for instance, has various powers or rights, call it what you will, uh, to extend uh, its maritime zones in respect of the 200-mile zone or in respect of the continental shelf and the like. It must, of course, do that in accordance with international law, but that is a power that it has. Equally, states have the right to seek diplomatic protection for uh, actions taken against their citizens, against their nationals. That again is not a matter of obligation under international law. So uh, we need already to distinguish between different types of international law and I'll pursue that matter a little further on. My second proposition with which I began was that it's for national legal systems, national constitutional systems to determine 
how to give effect to their international obligations. Uh, and there are, as we shall see, a, a number of different ways in which uh, they do that. Now, the proposition I've just stated is perhaps not an absolute one. <clears throat> it may be that in some areas of international law, the international law rule will require uh, certain means of implementation, uh, the Geneva Conventions of 1949 on the protection of victims of armed conflict, for instance, say that uh, states um, undertake to enact any legislation necessary to provide for the prosecution of uh, people who are allegedly committing grave breaches, uh, war crimes if you like, uh, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Uh, it will appear to later on that states may have other good reasons for legislating in respect of uh, international crimes. Now turning briefly, and I'll spend more time on this later, turning briefly to the way in which national legal systems give effect to international law, international law rules, uh, the way in which they give effect to it, um, to those rules, will depend in part on their national constitutional and legal systems as I've said. They also depend very much on the nature of the international rules in question. Now this matter of the different characteristics, the different natures of, uh, different nature of international law rules is a matter which often tends to be downplayed I think and I want to spend um, a little bit of time on it. <clears throat> international law, the rules under international law have varying characteristics and I'll consider this under four headings. Uh, first of all, the nature of the international uh, provisions in question may vary according to function. Uh, secondly, they of course vary, these rules, according to subject matter. Thirdly, they govern different relationships. And finally, they're, they're drafted, or they are written, or they're spelled out in ways of greater or lesser specificity. So let me <clears throat> take those matters up, those four headings. First of all, um, the international rules may have different functions, I said. They might, for instance, to take a first example, they might be of a constitutional character. The Charter of the United Nations, the Constitution of the International Labour Organization, the Statute of the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, second, they may be of a legislative nature. Consider the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and many other of the great codifying treaties, which you might see as analogous to national legislation, national codes. Thirdly, they might be of a conveyancing character. They may determine boundaries, they may determine river regimes and matters of that kind. And, and finally, they may be closer in national terms to contracts, exchanges of promises on a huge range of different topics. Uh, for instance, in respect of visas and visa abolition, or in respect of the entry and uh, departure of aircraft, of civil aviation arrangements. Many, many agreements in, across a whole wide, vast range of activity. The rules of customary international law too can be seen in something of, of the same way because I've been mainly talking about treaties. So then there are these different characteristics. 
and of course one or the, these different functions. One, one treaty may of course uh, contain uh, more than one of those functions. It, to take the Charter of the United Nations again, it sets up the institution. It also states very important obligations of, of uh, states not to use force and except in self-defence and so on. And very important obligations to settle their disputes by peaceful means and the like. Also particular provisions of a rather technical kind about privileges and immunities which are further elaborated in other conventions. So uh, first of all then the different functions of treaties. Uh, second as I said different subject matters and the subject matters of course are vast. Um, they can be matched, for instance, to the chapter headings of a standard textbook on international law. First of all, there are the basic obligations which I've just touched on relating to war and peace, not just in the Charter but also in the Hague and Geneva Conventions. Uh, provisions so far as peace are concerned for the peaceful settlement of disputes between states, between states and others as well. Uh, thirdly, um, secondly, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, there are provisions for disarmament and arms control. Uh, the, the treaties that have been negotiated down the years, especially between the major powers, uh, relating to uh, nuclear weapons or chemical weapons, for example. Third, there is the vast array of uh, agreements of treaties governing international trade, those drawn up within the World Trade Organization, the WTO those which are drawn up regionally, for instance in Europe or the Americas um, or in Asia, uh, and, and many bilateral uh, agreements uh, as well. So lots of trade agreements. Fourth, lots of international financial arrangements. Some of them again of a constitutional kind, establishing the World Bank and bodies like that, uh, establishing regional banks, but also providing on a contractual basis, if you like, uh, for for, for loans and for repayment and matters of that kind. Fourth, international commercial transactions. I've mentioned WTO and the like. There are also treaties that govern the relationships between traders, the uh, Vienna Convention on the International Sale of Goods, for instance, and uh, other agreements of that kind, uh, provisions relating to international commercial arbitrations, another instance. Uh, then sixth in my list, uh, there are all the provisions about international communications. Think of the post, uh, telecommunications, uh, uh, just all of, all of that law that governs the day-to-day -day movement of people and of goods uh, by air or by sea or by land or whatever, uh, and, and which divide up the radio spectrum uh, across the world or the television spectrum. Then seventh, uh, the law of international spaces, um, the law of the sea, uh, which has been around for a very long time. Uh, the, the much, although it's much changed in recent years, uh, the, much, the somewhat more recent law of the air, which is now only 100 years old, and the more recent um, law of outer space, of space. Then there is the law relating to specific areas of the globe, such as Antarctica, or, or great river systems or canal systems. And, and there are areas of particular international concern that are the subject of treaties and, and that runs into my 
Eighth category, uh, the law relating to the environment, where again uh, there's a, a great array of recent, relatively recent law negotiations are continuing right now on, on very important parts of that. There's then ninth in my list, and you may wonder about why I've got it so far down the list, but it's partly because it's relatively new, the area of human rights, including the general instruments drawn up by the United Nations, the uh, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and on matters of a more particular kind, such as genocide and uh, discrimination, uh, the rights of women, the rights of children. And, and then there are the very important regional agreements as well, the regional agreements uh, drawn up within Africa, Europe and, and the Americas, as, as well as those general instruments. Related, um, to come to a tenth heading, and I'm almost at the end of this list, uh, related to um, that uh, last heading of human rights are the international labour conventions, international labour agreements, which actually go back um, now for a full century, but particularly those that have been prepared by the International Labour Organisation 188, the last time I looked at uh, the ILO's website, and they govern uh, a whole wide array of the relationships between employers and, uh, and workers. And then there are, to round out the list at number 11, I think there are many other areas of international and economic, social, economic and uh, social cooperation uh, relating, say, to the work of the World Meteorological Organisation, the exchange of statistical information, um, crimes of, of an international character, um, a long history there in terms of piracy or war crimes, but recently um, many other uh, treaties concerned with corruption or, or with uh, war crimes, um, with hostage taking, with hijacking, with attacks on ships, uh, as well as aircraft. So I've mentioned then the different functions of treaties. I've second mentioned, and of much international law, I've second mentioned the uh, different subject areas, or some of them, and third, I come on to the different categories of relationships. Very often, and it's to be found in the first page quite often of books on international law, we think of international law as operating between states. And of course, much of it does, if you think of the Charter of the UN or the World Trade Organization treaties and so on. Um, and, and I don't want to diminish that at all. Uh, but uh, treaties or international law um, also govern a lot of other relationships or benefit a lot of other, other people, a lot of other institutions, a lot of other organisations. Many of the international rules, the rules that do operate between states, have benefits. They have positive sides so far as the individuals are concerned. The whole of world trade um, law, uh, as negotiated within the WTO for instance, although it's negotiated at that level, obviously is hugely important for traders, for, for purchasers, for manufacturers, for the people who are making goods and making products and, and buying and selling them and benefiting in, in all those directions. So the law formally is law between states. The reality in many ways is that it's law that uh, benefits individuals, even if you might say they don't have direct rights under the treaty, and generally they, they won't. So there are those consequences. But some of the rules do um, confer 
uh, rights and impose obligations on individuals. That's how they're designed. Human rights law on the one side is concerned for the most part with the relationship between a state uh, and individuals within that state's jurisdiction. Uh, international criminal law deals with the reverse situation, the situation where the individual is under an obligation uh, and can be prosecuted. Can be prosecuted sometimes in international courts and tribunals, but on other occasions, um, <clears throat> and more regularly, uh, is subject to prosecution by national jurisdictions. The state in which the person lives, or indeed other states under some forms of jurisdiction. And, and then to come to the uh, fourth uh, relationship, uh, the, the last of them, the one that's most likely in many cases to appear in national courts, or is very likely to appear in national courts, is the relationship between individuals. Uh, I mentioned earlier international labour conventions. They're drawn up in a, in a conference which actually includes workers and employers organisations as well as states. Uh, they're formally ratified by states but they operate for the most part between employer and worker. They don't operate uh, between the state and the individuals concerned, except to the extent that the state's an employer. They operate, as I say, between individuals. And quite a lot of human rights law can be seen in the same way. The law relating to discrimination on grounds of race or sex or whatever, uh, that law too uh, applies in many situations between private individuals, between a private employer, a private seller of goods and services, a land, landlord or landlady or whoever it might be. So much of the law then that um, we're concerned with in international law does have that uh, varying application so far, as, so far as relationships are concerned. Now, um, <clears throat> to, come, to come to my fourth and final uh, heading relating to uh, the different uh, characteristics of international law rules. I've mentioned different functions, different content, different relationships. The fourth one looks at a topic that you might think is relatively technical and relatively legalistic. Uh, it is the way in which the rules are written. Are the rules on the face of it capable of direct application by a court, by a tribunal, uh, in a matter that comes before that court. Now, if you think back over the various uh, points I've been making, you will see that in some cases the answer to that is yes, and in other cases it, it is no. And let me just try to um, set out five matters which uh, bear on this business of direct application by a court or a tribunal. The first one, and I've mentioned this at least once or twice before, uh, is that the rule in question might empower the state to take action. It might say to the state, to repeat the example, you are entitled to extend your uh, fishing zone out to 200 miles, subject to certain requirements and so on. Now, if the state hasn't taken that action, then there's nothing that a national court, on my understanding at least, can do about that. Uh, that the state must first move. It has a power, it does not have an obligation. Secondly, the obligation might be a programmatic one. It may be written, as in the case of the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, um, in these terms. Under that uh, covenant, 
each state party undertakes to take steps to the maximum of its available resources with a view to achieving progressively the full realisation of the rights recognised in the covenant by all appropriate means, including legislative ones. So the international community have made it clear there that states are to continue to strive. They're not under an immediate obligation to give effect to right X, right Y, right Z. They're to take steps to the maximum of their resources with an aim to achieving progressively the full realisation of these rights. Uh, a third <coughs> feature which may argue against a direct application, say, on a court, is that uh, the obligations might be of a procedural character. They might require a state, for instance, to notify, to inform, to consult obligations that are found in uh, environmental law, uh, in trade agreements, and so on. Uh, those are provisions which operate pretty much at the international level between states. They're not the kind of provisions that you ex would expect on the whole to um, arise directly in court proceedings. A fourth um, factor um, which bears on this direct applicability issue is that the wording of the undertaking might be so broad as not to provide judicially manageable standards there is one case from about 20 years ago, which I think might be decided differently now, in which judges said of a provision of a treaty which looks to me to be quite specific, that it is a pious declaration. And accordingly, those judges refused to give it direct effect, even although, under the constitution of the country in question, uh, treaties were said to be part of the law of the land, notwithstanding that declaration, not, notwithstanding that direction, in the Constitution, the judges did not give direct effect to the treaty. Now, by contrast to my four preceding points, the uh, treaty text might state rights and duties of individuals in a precise way. Um, these rights and duties might be owed by one individual to another. They might be owed to the state or by the state. They may be in such a precise form that they are capable of direct application in court proceedings. If you look at the Vienna Convention on uh, the International Sale of Goods, you see a good example of that. And many states which have given effect to that convention, which have become party to it, have just directly enacted it into their law if they have to take that uh, extra measure. I'll come to that issue in just a, a minute or two. The um, <clears throat> Hague Convention on the Abduction of Children is another, although perhaps more controversial, instance of that. Again, Many states which do require a legislative step to give effect to treaties have simply set out the Hague uh, Convention and have said that is the law and the judges are to apply that text. Uh, they haven't tried to elaborate on it themselves. And the same has been true uh, now for 80 years in respect of the Warsaw Convention or now the Montreal Convention on, the, uh, on liability for carriage by air when things go wrong. Um, on aircraft or in airports and so on. Um, many human rights treaties too are actually capable of direct application. Here there's a contrast with what I said a moment ago about the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. If you look at the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, it is written in a way which indicates it is to be given direct and immediate effect. 
uh, and, and many of the provisions are capable of being applied directly by national courts, much experience of, of that uh, already. Um, the, and, and so if the text does have that precise character, as I say, very often national authorities will apply it directly, either the courts under a constitutional direction or, the, uh, or, or, or through the legislature, if the legislature has to give effect to a treaty under the local legal system. Now, I've spent quite a bit of your time going through um, the varying characteristics of the vast scope of international law because those characteristics uh, are relevant. Indeed, they're very often decisive when it comes to considering how they're to be given effect to within a national legal system, particularly within courts. And, and that decisive character of the some of the matters I've mentioned may be so whatever the local constitutional system says about uh, the status of international law and particularly of treaties in national law. So I will, uh, I will round off this part before I head into the uh, question of just how different national legal systems approach this by just giving one other example of really a quite different kind. If you want a treaty that you would never expect to see enforced in a court, maybe not even in an international tribunal, think about a treaty of alliance. Um, a treaty of alliance generally begins with broad declarations of friendship between the state's parties. They call, uh, generally, for um, negotiation and consultation in certain circumstances, and they contain general, often very heavily qualified, um, obligations on the one party to come to the assistance of the other if the other is the subject of an armed attack. So provisions of that kind are, are in sharp contrast uh, to the provisions that I was just mentioning, say, in the Warsaw Convention on Carriage by Air, liability matters of aircraft operators and so on, or of the Convention on the International Sale of Goods, or the uh, Hague Convention on uh, Abduction, where the rules are of a different character, they're rules that are drafted precisely, they're rules that are designed to operate between individuals, they're the rules that you would expect often enough to find in court. Now, I, I now come to um, the uh, uh, other matter, the matter of how in a national legal system uh, these international law rules are to be applied. But I would stress, in, in the light of what I've said, that very often the very character of the rules in question, their nature, their characteristics, will be a determinative factor or at least a very important one. Well, I, I come then uh, to the conflicting theories uh, of monism and dualism and corporation and transformation uh, of international law as a part of the law or merely a source, uh, international law which is self-executing uh, and that that isn't in terms of national legal systems. I shall have almost nothing to say about those theories, partly for reasons of time, but um, also uh, because I don't find them very useful uh, in practice, or I haven't found them very useful in, in my life in the law, with one important exception, and that is that, uh, uh, to use the expression dualism and monism, uh, it is the case that under some constitutional systems, treaties in particular, are automatically part of the law once they've been 
accepted by the state in question once they've been ratified. Uh, and in other legal systems, that is not the case. Just to take two states whose law I know reasonably well, the United Kingdom uh, is in the dualist camp, if you like. Their legislation has to be enacted uh, if treaties are to give rise directly to rights and duties. In the United States, the Constitution provides in a monistic way uh, that uh, treaties are part of the law of the land. So that's, that's what the local constitutional systems say. But as I've already really indicated, I think, uh, that's not a difference which in practice is as sharp as might at first appear. It disappears, that difference, in some of the circumstances I've mentioned. Um, I've mentioned once or twice the, the business of uh, crimes of international concern. The uh, treaty obligation might be stated in very broad terms, which obviously does require legislation, whatever the uh, constitutional provision says. Um, this, this probably is a convenient moment for me just to take a quick break before I continue with a rather shorter treatment in the second part of this, uh, in, in which I will talk about the place of customary international law in national law, uh, and about uh, the interpretation of treaties, the interpretation of constitutions, the development of the common law by reference uh, to, uh, to, to um, international legal obligations. <laughs>